virtual treatment cannot be too intense because we don't know the type of support that clients have back home. It's more psychosocial education, managing addictions, harm reduction, relapse prevention. That's Wanda Smith. She's the Executive Director for Native Horizons Treatment Center in the heart of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation in Southern Ontario. She's our guest on Minobimatsuin, talking about virtual treatment services for drug and alcohol addiction. I'm Carol Hopkins, CEO of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, an organization that supports First Nations across Canada in mental wellness. Minobimatsuin means living the good life in the language of Anishinaabe. And Thunderbird chose that as a name for the podcast because it captures what we all hope for, for ourselves and those that we care about. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of First Nations families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is the same as Thunderbirds, to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness. One that is grounded in culture, Indigenous ways of knowing, with a connection to community and above all else with kindness and compassion. And today, we're thrilled to have Wanda Smith joining us on Minomimatsuin. For 35 years, Wanda has been the Executive Director for Native Horizons Treatment Center, and she's had a long history and career in the field of addressing First Nations addictions, spanned 45 years in various positions, from community youth counselor to Native Addictions Program teacher, master at Northern College in Timmins, to Executive Director for White Buffalo Youth Treatment Center in Sturgeon Lake, Saskatchewan. Native Horizons focuses on healing individuals, families, and communities challenged by substance use and the related mental health issues for over 30 years with virtual and live-in residential treatment services that are culturally centered in a nurturing, home-like atmosphere. Wanda, welcome to the Minimabatsuin podcast. Hi, Carol. It's an honor to be here with you today. So some of the things we wanted to talk about are highlighting the uh, First Nations uh, addictions treatment centers across Canada. And uh, today I wanted to talk to Wanda specifically about her outreach program. So Wanda, can you tell us what differences have virtual outreach treatment services made to um, the First Nations that your treatment center serves? It's giving them opportunity, especially for Native Horizons. As you know, our center has been down for almost four and a half years now. What do you mean by down? Yeah, we lost our building to a fire four and a half years ago, and we are finally finishing up construction, and hopefully we'll get into residential programming by September, the end of September. So going to virtual was probably the only option we had at the time to be able to reach a number of clients seeking service. And especially since COVID, our staff did that by partnering with Rainbow Lodge Outreach 
program for their virtual program. Our staff were clients for a session and then co-facilitated the following session with Rainbow Lodge staff so that they would have experience and an idea of what to expect to, to deliver ours. So we're so grateful to Rainbow Lodge and their staff and their virtual program in mentoring us through that. So in developing and delivering our program, we've been able to open up the catchment area to anywhere in the country, basically. We've had some people from Alberta. We've had people from the Atlantic coast, as well as throughout Ontario, join the program. So Wanda, can you take our listeners back to a description of what does virtual outreach services look like? You described the great partnership and the collaboration with other uh, another Indigenous First Nations governed and operated treatment center. That's Rainbow Lodge. Thank goodness for them. They had they had a program that they had already developed. They trained your staff, and so then you were able to reach clients from across the country. But what do clients actually experience? What do First Nations people actually experience? in a virtual outreach program? When clients make contact with a referral agent, um, that's when their aftercare really starts, before they even get into treatment or any other kind of services. And it is our intent to have connections with the referral when the client approaches them so that we can start that process for them with them. So any other, the agencies that the client is involved with within the community, whether it's CAS, you know, uh, Children's Aid Society, probation and parole, employment, whatever they're involved with, that those actors in that client's care are involved with that. And we start to lay the foundation for a positive outcome in that client's treatment journey assisting the referral worker with four or five sessions with the client to prepare them for treatment wherever they go, doing uh, some uh, relapse prevention, some harm reduction while the client is in the community getting ready for treatment, doing the assessments that uh, the treatment center may need prior to enrollment, uh, getting the applications completed doing some education with the families on what that whole treatment process is and maybe some, you know, just basic education around addictions and what to expect in this, in this healing journey that the client may embark on, as well as getting commitment from the other services that are involved with the client that they will support and continue contact with that client throughout their treatment process. So identifying touch points throughout the treatment process that on, you know, week three, I mean, week two, day three, we're going to have a conference call or a video meeting or some kind of session with all the the actors in that client's journey to discuss the progress to date and what's happening at home. Maybe the client needs housing at home. Maybe they need a job. And so they're their workers in the community can be working on that while the client is in treatment and updating the client when we have those touch point sessions throughout treatment 
so that the client knows that yes, I'm still connected with my community. Things are do are happening on my behalf. My family's being supported and I'm being supported here. So throughout the, the treatment cycle, those touch points happen and the prog- hopefully the progress continues and, and goes on. As well as with the uh, referral worker, appointments are already determined when the client leaves treatment that the client is going to meet up with this referral worker and any other agencies on such and such a date. And this is what we're going to be doing. Whether or not the client finishes treatment, those appointments are still there ready for the client. If the client leaves early, then we make arrangements with the referral to adjust those appointment dates. But hopefully the clients will have um, a successful residential treatment journey when they're going back into the community and continue the the journey with the uh, contacts that they have in the community. Uh, It is also our hope that we have some kind of alumni or peer support group in the community that the client can be introduced to when they initially seek service from a referral worker. For support and camaraderie, these peer support group could welcome that, that potential client saying, you know, I'm going to Native Horizons and I've been there. It's a good program. Tough it out. Stay away from the director. <laughs> She's a witch. <laughs> um, the food is good, that kind of thing. Just to support the client and know that there's somebody in the community that's been through the through a program or a treatment program or is on their healing journey and recovery as well so that they have somebody that they can connect with once they're through treatment or even if they leave early that group would more likely than likely welcome them back into the community and say you know what you gave it two weeks don't give up you know maybe you're not ready right now try it again in you know a few months we're hoping that that can happen can you describe, help our listeners to understand who are the people, who are the First Nations people who are ser- seeking services uh, from Native Horizons Treatment Center? You are talking about virtual services. During the pandemic, you were not able to offer in-person residential services, not just because of the pandemic, but because the building um, had burnt and you were trying to restructure. And so you transitioned to offer a virtual program. And I'm just trying to help our listeners understand who is it that seeks out virtual services? Who are the First Nations and what characteristics did they have around substance use where they reached out to you and said, I need something and I think at least Mm -hmm. virtual services can help me. And that is exactly the, the type of person that did reach out is someone who was having difficulties on their own mm-hmm. and wanting something, anything. Um, we would often make referrals to other residential treatment centers. Um, sometimes they didn't want to go to other residential treatment centers. They wanted to wait for Native Horizons programming. And in the meantime, would be taking up, taking up in the, the virtual care, the virtual program. And people that were trying to to get clean, whether it's off of drugs or alcohol. There were also people that that wanted to do it as a step in their court proceedings and were not really 
committed to programming. They would join the virtual program and not participate. And clearly sometimes people were still using. As long as they showed up and were at least participating, if it became too obvious that they weren't in it, then discussions were had with the client on the true intentions of it. So when you're talking about people who would seek out virtual services, Mm -hmm. oftentimes the perception is that if you're participating in virtual services for addictions treatment, that it's less intense than a Mm -hmm. in-person residential live-in treatment service. And so for people who you described as having difficulties, difficulties with um, trauma and dealing with trauma mm-hmm. were then uh, reaching for drugs or alcohol to manage the difficulty in dealing with the trauma. And somehow they came to a realization that the drugs and alcohol were not working for them. And so they reached out for virtual services would you say that's the case or what kind, what are those difficulties people were facing? The difficulties that I, that people are faced oftentimes show themselves up in relationships, relationships ah. with, with um, significant partners, with their mm. children, with families, with community. Some kind of disconnect in the relationship. Yes. A disconnect in the relationship, mm-hmm. a disconnect with themselves, which basically is the core of it. I think all of the the individuals that have sought assistance, have mm-hmm. sought programming, have trauma as its core with mm-hmm. the addictions covering up the symptoms. It's, the addiction is just the symptom. Okay. The trauma is the is the real issue. Virtual treatment cannot be too intense because we don't know the type of support that clients have back home whether they're in an environment that can support, say, for example, if they're triggered. Mm-hmm. So the virtual programs do not go really deep. It's more educational, psychosocial education, uh, managing addictions, harm reduction, relapse prevention, education. So you're helping people to understand what is actually happening for them that the reasons why they may be seeking um, relief from the trauma through drugs and alcohol and educating them about, uh, I would think in part normalizing that experience for people that, Mm -hmm. that they're, when there's trauma in their life, such as the loss of a relationship, that one of the strategies to cope with that loss is drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. but there are other options. Is that, right. is that the education that Yes, I'm imagining? Perhaps there are people listening and saying, oh, that's me. Or, mm-hmm. you know, that's my situation with my son or my daughter. I wish they right. could go to treatment. And is virtual treatment an option? Or what's the difference between virtual services yeah. and sending somebody away to live in a building for a period of right. time? And what, what, what do they get? Yeah. So if yeah. you could just maybe enhance some description sure. yeah. about that difference. Okay. So I think the difference would be that with 
with the virtual treatment that it's the first stepping stone of gaining some understanding of why am I using? Mm. Why do I run to the drugs and alcohol, like really what's underneath it? And some people are at that point where they're questioning what's really going on. And again, there's some people that aren't questioning. Mm. They're just, you know, using. Um, But typically in the virtual programming, we're educating clients on the effects of addictions, addictions in the body, addictions in the brain, mm-hmm. how addictions have, a, have impacted our relationships mm-hmm. right across the board with self, family, community. Um, and then why am I using? What are the things that lead me to use? And when do I use? When do I seem to use most? What's happening in my life when I, when I feel like turning to the alcohol and drugs and getting people to take a look at that and what has happened in my life. And we don't want to go too far back into what has happened in our lives previously, like back in childhood, because it can be too, too emotionally, uh, um, I don't want to say dangerous, but it can be emotionally challenging if people don't have the proper supports back home Mm. or, to to help manage some of those things that might come up so it's trying to keep it on a level where clients are gaining some some knowledge and education and can apply those kinds of things to their lives and many times we hear oh aha moments Mm. you know those epiphanies that say oh yeah so you're planting seeds yeah for sure for sure um and I see this virtual programming continuing, and it could be a stepping stone into residential treatment, preparing clients for that kind of discussion and openness about our own behaviors, our own attitudes, um, those kinds of things for that, the portions of residential treatment, of group work, being open and um, discussing those kinds of things in a group setting. Mm. Um, for residential treatment, living with a group for four, six, eight weeks, however long the treatment program is, is an opportunity for clients to go further into some of those things that have happened previously in our lives and usually way back in childhood to explore those things and the impact that they've had not only um, in our behaviors, but our beliefs about ourselves and our attitudes and our relationships, and especially with the relationship to ourself. How is that? How are how are those things impacted? And if we take a look at the the Aces um, meaning um, Aces um, acute <laughs> acute childhood experiences. Yes. Yes. <laughs> just stumped there for a minute yeah (laughs) Uh, yes for how those uh childhood experiences have impacted us and oftentimes when clients take a look at those 10 or 12 items that uh, are indicated on the aces scale Mm -hmm. that um they're astounded that so many things have impacted them for example, a parent being incarcerated or, you know, family violence in the home. 
and it isn't specific to indigenous populations, but to anybody. Mm. Um, and the impact that those things have on us, that those things are, are able to be explored in depth in a residential program mm. um, with support there 24 seven. So you're creating an environment of safety, psychological safety, emotional safety, safety around our own thinking about ourselves and others. Right. And in that safety, oftentimes provides avenues for us to be vulnerable and to further explore ourselves mm-hmm. and to share that and to be accepted and honored for that. So no matter how far or how deep a person is able or chooses to go in discovering those acute or harmful or impactful childhood experiences, the journey is one that is first and foremost around a person's safety so that you're not facilitating a process where somebody feels like they're going to get stuck or they're going to end up hating others for the rest of their life. It's really about safety and exploring patterns. I, you know, when you were talking, it sounded like you were helping people to unveil a bit at a time the patterns that have been playing out in their life. And I could also see patterns that are very, very colorful, that patterns don't always have to be hurtful, damaging, that those patterns may have served people well, helped them to survive and cope. The strategies that we use to cope are not always negative, that there's strength in the resiliency that we have. And oftentimes we don't see our strengths, our resiliency as strengths. Mm -hmm. That um, my stubbornness, for example. um, Hypothetically or real? (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of both. Or maybe a lot. <laughs> Depends on who you're talking to, I suppose. Exactly. Eh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, my stubbornness not to uh, say quit drinking mm. um, or my stubbornness not to give up in a fight may have actually been my survival in a domestic violence situation. Yeah. Or um, the stubbornness could be turned around and looked at as my determination to to do something Mm. so the things that I use to cope with um, whatever hurt or anxiety or you know issue that I may have had while I was drinking can be looked at in terms of you know a strength uh, in my recovery as well too so and I think it's important that we recognize that all of us have some kind of trauma or hurt from our past that has impacted us. And I'm going to get on my soapbox now. Okay. (laughs) Um, When you say all of us, you mean first nations people? I mean, all people. Okay. 
but specifically First Nations people, we come from cultures of, of um, trauma. Whether or not we are a residential school survivor, a sexual abuse survivor, our communities, the fact that we live in our communities and the violence that we see, the death and the loss that we see, it all impacts us. So I think that we're all, especially Indigenous people, have trauma that, that we need to need to deal with. Mm-hmm. And the trauma of racism even. Yeah. Loss of our land and language. Exactly. And us as helpers, we have our own traumas as well too. Mm. And if we do not deal with our own trauma, if we do not heal ourselves and look after our wellness, then we have no business trying to help clients with theirs. High priority for doing our own healing work. Exactly. And I think that organizations, boards, chiefs and councils need to support staff in doing their own healing as well. And I'm very fortunate that our board supports our staff in doing their own healing work, uh, mainly through a process of psychodramatic body work, but supporting us and giving us that the time and the resources to do that. We do not ask clients to do anything that we have not done and continue to do ourselves. We need to be healthy in order to give our clients the best possible care that they deserve and to help them on their journeys into wellness. I think what you're describing is trauma-informed care that you have to recognize your own traumas and be able to be uh, work through that to be a better helper, be a better support to people who are in a journey that looks at wellness. Right. That is absolutely right. And I think it's, um, it moves beyond trauma-informed care into trauma-informed practice not only for the clients, but for the, the staff as well. So you've been talking about the journey from virtual uh, addictions, uh, treatment services to in-person, live-in uh, addictions treatment services. And it sounded like what you were saying in the virtual services, that it's a space for creating awareness and mm-hmm. your staff or the addictions workforce are really planting seeds of thought that mm-hmm. can be nurtured through one's own wondering, being helpful in, in showing them that there are patterns of behaviors that have developed as a response to our experiences in life and that you see most often that what brings people to seek services is there's something happening in their relationships. Is it an event or is it like a specific type of event that you hear about more often in those relationship challenges or is it all of a sudden someone decides I'm tired of the way my life is going? It's, uh, I think it's a little bit of both and, and maybe not even all of a sudden I realize that, oh God, I need, I need help kind of thing, but something that's been 
kind of percolating for a while and coming to a virtual program and hearing the effects of it and and, uh, the the impacts of it kind of just says yeah i need help Uh, other times there are situations where clients are faced with i'm going to lose my children if i don't get into some treatment i'm going to go to jail if i don't get treatment or i can reduce my sentence (laughs) my length of time in jail if i get some treatment those kinds of things perpetuate uh, somebody wanting to get into uh, a program rather quickly and virtual right now is is easier to get into. Mm. Also, too, we've had um, situations where employers will call and say we have an employee who's on the verge of losing their job if if something uh, uh, isn't done to change the current behaviors. Okay. So yeah, there. So there's situations that are all of a sudden pop up and clients are faced with that they have to do something uh, rather quickly. And there's others where I know that I need to quit kind of reluctantly. (laughs) They call or make contacts. And as well, we did a lot of of calls and, and referrals from desperate parents, and rightly so. The parents are calling about their children who seem to be getting younger and younger. So no longer is it the 29-year-olds, the 25-year-olds, it's the 16- and 14-year-olds that parents are calling about desperate to find some kind of service for their child. They're desperate because they are afraid of what consequences their their family members might endure if they don't have support for a different path. Correct. They're afraid of their children dying. I've heard that from many other communities that um, there's a feeling of desperation and that there's they're desperate because they don't immediately see uh, resources that the community can employ within or put in place within the community to help alleviate some of the stress over um, how do I keep my child alive? How do I keep my partner alive? Or how do they stay alive? And so that desperation leads them to figure out a way. Um, How do you handle family members? Or what is the support that is offered to family members or parents or caregivers or relatives of an extended family network, how how are they supported when they feel that desperation? I imagine that has to be so stressful, worrying that if there isn't immediate help, my mm-hmm. my person could not be alive tomorrow. Those calls are very heartbreaking. Mm. Because we don't have a program, we've and since the fire, I think we've gotten almost over 9,000 calls from people looking for service. And many of those are desperate parents looking for their child. Having that initial conversation with them, empathizing with them, provides some momentary relief mm-hmm. that they're not alone. I know we that we try to help them source some kind of service mm. in their area. 
Many of them are outside of our area, so we don't know, but we, we try and help them whatever we can and connect them to, to those kinds of resources, whether they're treatment programs or other agencies within their communities. Or maybe the Hope but, for Wellness hotline. Yeah. Yes. That has been referred to many times. Um, so you provide some need- brief brief intervention to help them yes. with their immediate pain and suffering. And, yeah. and then act as a bridge to find some other resources that can help them even further. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that that's probably one of the areas that uh, we need to look at as communities is providing those kinds of supports, support groups to family members of persons that use drugs. Mm. It's not only about those people that are addicted or that are using drugs and alcohol, but it's about their families as well, too. Mm. And how can we support them? Having a safe place for them just to gather and talk and share, I think, is paramount. More of them need to happen in communities. We are looking at that, Mm. trying to provide some kind of group like that for communities. Because we're losing too many people, too many, especially of our young people. We're losing people when we know what the solutions are, when we know what services are needed, but they're not available in our communities. And our communities may not have the resources necessary to be able to offer those uh, services or programs or interventions or the outreach to uh, young people who are suffering and mm-hmm. and don't know what to do about that. And we have programs that are able to offer services, but they're stretched so thin because there are so many demands placed on them by the community and by other agencies and stuff that it's impossible to, to meet the need. Not enough people to keep up with the demand for services. Yes. Wanda, can you tell us a little bit about what has been innovative, something that stands out in uh, the virtual services that Native Horizons has offered? How do you connect people to culture, or have you been able to connect people to culture through virtual services? Virtual smudging, (laughs) virtual singing and drumming, uh, which is always interesting. (laughs) It's interesting because... Because of people singing from their laptops and computers and things, uh, sometimes with the internet connections and stuff, words are warbled or drawn out. <laughs> so it can be quite comical. Okay. <laughs> uh, with, with, but yeah, getting people I, to a place where they're not afraid or shy um, to sing along, um, yeah. <laughs> says that there's a connection that's happening for people that they feel something through the song, through the words of the song, mm-hmm. through the melody of the rhythm of the drum that they, it inspires them to want to sing. And it doesn't matter whether they're on key in time right. <laughs> or whether, you know, yeah, that yeah, says something be- about the connections people are able to make. Right. And storytelling and 
teachings through the virtual programming. I've heard before that there's a lot of concern for recording teachings and Indigenous knowledge. Are your elders or knowledge holders, cultural practitioners, are they concerned about that when you're offering virtual services? Are they concerned about somebody writing it down or or recording? How does that play a role or does it play a role? So far, it hasn't with uh, the ones that we've used for the virtual programming. Okay. That it hasn't been an issue, but I do know that there are some that it is a major concern of. So they're able to navigate that concern themselves. And I guess the concern is really about um, not so much trying to be stingy or hold back, but really wanting to make make sure that there's safety, that people, um, when they go away from whatever virtual environment that they're participating in, that they truly understand what is being shared with them and it doesn't cause confusion. I, th- I think it was uh, mm-hmm. Peter Ochis that said that when we're not clear about the teaching and its meaning, and then we perpetuate that story, that that confusion that may arise from that is a sickness. And so we don't want to create the sickness of confusion. And that's why they're concerned about the recording is, is our people taking away the original intent and meaning. Um, Anyways, just thought I'd ask you about that because I know there has been concern, um, across the country about what is it that we are sharing about our culture in a virtual space. So you've talked about smudging, singing and drumming, which is great. And then the teachings. Um, Mm -hmm. But when you talked earlier about the virtual services offering, being careful to offer a level of services that educates people rather than uh, challenges them to process um, the emotions underlying the childhood experiences or the trauma that they're experiencing in their life. I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that the offering of culture is the same way, that it's at a level of safety, that safety about protecting uh, that sacred knowledge, so it's not used in an in- inappropriate way, but it's uh, safe for people, the First Nations people who are hearing it, that they're able to digest it and understand mm-hmm. it. Would that be a fair description? Yes, it would be, and that's exactly how I intended it to be, because it's not it's not a full ceremony that's done. I guess what I can liken it to, it's given in the context of the virtual space, mm-hmm. knowing the limitations, not only of the space, but the clients as well, mm-hmm. the environment. Always respect for the environment and the space. Awesome. What are you seeing in terms of, you mentioned alcohol and Thunderbird has heard that people want more resources related to alcohol And what does that look like uh, for the people seeking your services? Is the pattern of alcohol use changing at all? Or what kind of stories are you hearing from community, from family, 
from First Nations people seeking services for alcohol use. Alcohol is still a high priority. It's running close to the opioids as well. Mm. In regards to alcohol, there's a lot of requests and demands for detox. And those services are just too few and far between. Not enough detox services. Okay. No, not at all. Whether they're mainstream, even the land-based ones, there are a few land-based ones in the area that are overwhelmed. When you say in the area, you're talking about Ontario. Yeah, southern Ontario for us right now. Mm-hmm. We do have one in, in Six Nations. And yeah, there's another one that I'm aware of too up in Manitoulin. Manitoulin Island? Yes, but there's not enough. And people are demanding these services as well as transition homes. Ah. The step between detox and residential treatment, having a place where, where people can be during that transition and as well post-treatment as well too, leaving treatment and not having, having anywhere to go. Housing is an issue then. Yes, definitely. So when people are seeking detox services for alcohol use, is it the service that is going to attend to medication to support the withdrawals of alcohol, or is it the supervision of someone decide, who decides to quit uh, drinking alcohol cold turkey and might have some physical complications um, mm-hmm. because they're not, they don't have alcohol in their system? Is it both, or is it one or the other, do you think? We're seeing the, the latter of people wanting to have some support for the withdrawal. With for the withdrawal right and having some connection to a medical, either a nurse or a hospital, just for for backup and for safety. Mm-hmm. But it's just too few and far between. So stopping someone who just decides I'm not going to drink alcohol anymore and is able to achieve that idea in in their mm-hmm. life can have. Um, other health complications. So alcohol definitely impacts the wellness of our being, but just stopping it in our life can also have complications. Mm -hmm. And so they seek detox services to ensure that they can withdraw from the alcohol in a safe way. Right. And that's why I think that the medical and the connection is there, having some kind of supervision with a medical practitioner and or hospital to ensure the safety of of that process for for someone wanting to withdraw. So it's the physical as well as the psychological safety of someone going through the withdrawals. Yeah. Yeah, I think that level of care in response to alcohol use matches uh, some of the stories I've heard um, from community where coming out of the pandemic people were still able to access alcohol. They started to see a shift towards people um, consuming alcohol alone. So hiding their level of alcohol use and 
the type of alcohol that were they were using is um, is like liquor, like whiskey or vodka, um, and consuming large amounts. And so, using mm-hmm. alone, using a, a level of alcohol that has more serious health implications um, can cause other health issues, including you know, damage to our, our major organs is, is the concern that I've heard from parents or from communities. So using alone, using more potent or uh, um, level of, of alcohol and not knowing um, until there's a, there's a serious health issue that has prompted attention. With the pandemic and like you say, people using alone and using higher higher amounts and with the the ease of delivery to your home of alcohol right <laughs> really uh, impacted that as well so there's a big difference between the harms of alcohol between beer wine liquor um, they all have different impacts on our on our being and uh, so when you're talking about detox it may be for any level of that alcohol, whether it's beer, wine, or liquor, but it is the liquor that has more uh, damaging effects. And alcohol is the cause of many types of cancer. That's a sidetrack. I won't go down because that'll take us into a whole other conversation. But I'm just going to wrap it up by saying, well, you've offered a lot of good education for the listeners of the Minobimatsuwin podcast. And I want to thank you so much, Wanda, for coming on and participating and for offering uh, good information and education for First Nations people who might be who might be at a point in their life where they are looking for some type of service to address their substance use or or maybe have an awareness that their use of drugs or alcohol has reached a level of dependency that they have little to no control over and helping them to understand what is virtual treatment and what is its place in a in a journey to healing and wellness is good education, good information. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Minobimatsuin. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and where you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And please hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit the website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for us at thunderbirdpf. Miigwech and thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Carol Hopkins.